there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is ESPN host Kay Murray. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of the men's and women's game. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. In segment one today, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news, and we'll have my interview with Kay Murray in segment two. But let's bring in Whitty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. How are you? I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. It seems like the soccer world never stops. We've gone almost instantly from big World Cup stuff and the World Cup draw into a weekend of domestic league games and straight into the Champions League quarterfinals over the last two days. And things are really getting down to business. And one quick reaction is the Spanish teams are doing quite well for themselves. Um, you know, we're looking at Real Madrid getting a 3-1 win in leg one at Chelsea, getting some revenge on what Chelsea did to them last season in Champions League. Another hat trick, a second straight Champions League hat trick for Karim Benzema. And then also Villarreal beats Bayern Munich 1-0 at home in their Champions League quarterfinal leg one. Atletico, 1-0 losers to Man City, but they certainly made life difficult for Man City on Tuesday. And then Liverpool winning 3-1 at Benfica in the other leg one quarterfinal. But let's start with with Real Madrid and Benzema's hat trick because... um, you know, Chelsea is the reigning Champions League winner, the world club champion, and Real Madrid totally deserved this. Completely agree. And I'm just sort of left wondering at the end of the 90 minutes, like how the game got away from Chelsea, particularly in the first half. And yeah, there are these moments of quality from Karim Benzema, but, you know, out of the second half, a massive howler from Edouard Mendy. And I, I'm kind of not left thinking, you know, the same thing that I think about Chelsea when they lost at the weekend to Brentford, where, you know, maybe there's some things wrong there. It's these kind of flash moments where Real Madrid are clinical as they are want to do in Europe. Like this was kind of them flashing their European pedigree. If you look at the entire field, there's, you know, tons of Champions League experience. And you can just tell with the way that they put away their chances with Benzema. For me right now, if you're just saying who is playing the best football in the world right now, it is Kareem Benzema. And I think rarely we talk about when it comes to, I mean, we talk a lot about story and even sometimes tactics and systems. But for me, like, I just want to like break down how Kareem Benzema pulled off those two headers in particular. The third goal I could have scored, but the second, but the, the, the first and the second, the header is hit with such power, just snaps his neck into it. And it's like from that angle, from the way that the cross is coming in, it was an extraordinary header. And then the second, I think, is in some ways more impressive because he's <laughs> leaning away from the ball. The ball is kind of going against his momentum, and he still manages to, with his head, get enough power going the other side, and it has to be angled perfectly to get past the outstretched gloves of Edward Mendy. And those are just such technically impressive goals. Like, I don't think the art of heading is really explored enough. And I think Kareem Benzema, it was a masterclass in the art of heading. And even to some extent, Kai Havertz's goal was as well, uh, the way that he was able to get enough power to get it beyond Courtois, who I thought had a brilliant performance as well. And for me, is the reason why Madrid head back to Madrid with a 3-1 advantage. Yeah. I, the thing about Benzema is, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. 
I think he's more than just a center forward. And I'm going to probably sound harsh on Robert Lewandowski here because I think he's an amazing player. But I don't think they're all that similar. And I think Benzema does more to set up his goals. And at least today was an example of the give and go that he started on the first goal that he then finished very well. But if he doesn't do what he did to help get things going, then there's no chance for him to even finish it. And I, I just feel, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's got to come off as me being harsh on, on Lewandowski here. I just feel like there's there are more levels to Benzema's game than most center forwards. And I think the fact that he was able to coexist with Cristiano Ronaldo for so many years is sort of proof of that, right? Like, I'm not sure there's enough oxygen in, in an attack with Lewandowski and Ronaldo in it. I think Benzema demonstrated for so long that he was willing to take a secondary role when he is very clearly a primary player. Like, you can absolutely build a top-quality attack around Karim Benzema. And I think now that Real Madrid have added a little more, some of their players have gotten better, they now have a system around him that allows him to thrive. But I think probably... There's another version of Kareem Benzema's career where he is more often in the best player in the world conversation because he is not playing a secondary role to another player. Let's say he's at Inter instead of Real Madrid and they build the team around him, you know, from from the word go and he has this you know much more gaudy numbers than he does now, but he was able to play differently because he is that quality of player and I don't think that the, the complete forward uh, is really something that exists a ton. When you look at, you know, a lot of teams using false nines, when you look at, you know, you can think of a guy like Roberto Firmino who does a lot of that stuff for Liverpool, at least he used to, uh, in terms of goal scoring and that extra work. But now his, like, his goal scoring is never of the level of a Kareem Benzema. I, I, I don't think that there's a player who does as much on the pitch as he does. And it's just remarkable the quality that he has and how he's kind of been underappreciated over the course of his career because of who he was playing with and the team that he was in. But that ability to play as the man, but also as complementary to someone who's even bigger, I think could help when, I presume, Kylian Mbappe joins Real Madrid because I, I feel like Benzema and Mbappe could be great up front together in a way that if you put two superstars together, sometimes it doesn't always pan out. And that's just my sense on things. But just, I, I can remember watching Kareem Benzema in Euro 2008 with France, and everyone said, this is the next big guy, and he wasn't great in that tournament. And I was kind of like, I know he's emerging, you got to give him patience. But, you know, here's a player who was playing in Euro 2008. It's 2022, and he's that influential in consecutive Champions League games. So they're not playing podunk teams. They played PSG in the last game. They needed his hat trick. They played Chelsea today, and they got another hat trick. I mean, it's incredible when you think of it in those terms. And so just uh, very impressive. I, I kind of didn't think Real Madrid really had a, a great chance of winning Champions League, and I'm starting to change my, my mind. Uh, at this point right now. And I guess the question for me is like, can they hang with Liverpool or Man City? I think they can. Yeah, it, it's one of those teams where I, I'm not sure I can really explain it. Like, I, I don't think I watched that performance today and go, oh, they're very clearly amazing. I mean, I, you know, they still have that same customary midfield of 
Modric, Casemiro, and Kroos, and if they have so many players who have the the pedigree of having won that competition. But that's kind of for me like what their style is. The style is their pedigree. Um, I couldn't really explain in any other terms other than Kareem Benzema puts away big chances and they they apply some pressure and they're pretty solid defensively. Like I've I've it, to me it's been fairly remarkable. Think about the first 150 minutes of the tie with PSG, how much they see the possession, how much it wasn't about being proactive. It's about being reactive. And then it was kind of the same today against Chelsea, but they frustrated Chelsea. They have incredible goalkeeper. I, for me, I think the moment as much as the hat trick will figure in the tie, the moment that really sets up the way that the second leg is an uphill climb for Chelsea is the save from Courtois against Aspiliqueta, because that yeah. is a shot where, you know, it's one of my, um, it's one of my pet peeves with the expected goals model for judging goalkeepers, where that shot from that position is like a .0001 XG, and yet he catches it cleanly. It's heading straight for the top corner. That is a goal, and Courtois <laughs> leaps out of the air and just pulls off this miraculous save, and that for me is like the moment that defines this game because I think at 3-2, Chelsea are right in it. At 3-1, even without the away goals, which, and we'll get to the other games, I think this is the round where I've really started to notice how different a tie feels without away goals because Real Madrid getting three away from home, for me, it's tie over, it's over, and right. it's not. Chelsea still have a chance. I mean, if they win by two goals to nil away from home, which is not conceivable, they're at worst going to extra time. Yeah. Now, it's certainly a different way of looking at it, given the new rule. Um, my question about Bayern Munich, and I only caught parts of this game. It's very hard for me to watch two games at the same time, and I'm still a little floored that games of this magnitude, that you have concurrent games. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's crazy in 2022. Um, but that early goal from Villarreal, they hold on, get the 1-0. And that's a pretty impressive achievement against a Bayern Munich that's been totally dominant in both the Bundesliga and in Champions League. A favorite to win this tournament. And yet, I felt somewhat similar at the end of the, the Bayern game at Salzburg in the round of 16, where Salzburg almost won that first game 1-0, and then Bayern gets a really late equalizer. And all along, I felt like Bayern was just going to blow away Salzburg in the return leg, and they did. Do you get a similar feeling now with this Villarreal situation? Yeah, I, I think that that probably that arc would make sense. Um, I guess the only difference here is that you compare Salzburg and Villarreal. Villarreal are a completely different proposition just in terms of the way that they play the composition of their squads. Villarreal is much more experienced, and Unai, Unai Emery has such experience in Europe. He's really good in European competitions um, and could presumably go away from home and frustrate Bayern a little bit, but I I would have to imagine that you head towards a second leg where Bayern are going to be a, a, applying a ton of pressure in the first 15, 20 minutes, and I'd be stunned if Villarreal hung on. But look, you know, doubt them at your own peril. I mean, they've been <laughs> doubted in... European competitions, they've been doubted in, you know, in this Champions League to even get out of the group. You look at their league position, and you're not thinking that this Real Real team is great, but for whatever reason, they just have the formula in this competition. That's a really impressive result. To get a 1-0 at home against Bayern Munich, for me, it's the nil more than the one. And you look at, you know, late in that game, Villarreal has a great chance. There's a great counter-attacking move. They get all the way down the field, and, and there was a slice shot that went that went wide. But 
for me, Villarreal have been really impressive in this competition. They deserve all kinds of credit for what they've managed to put together. And I'm, I'm not ruling out that they can, you know, really go to Bayern and frustrate them. But at the same time, the probability would suggest that Bayern are going to win by a couple couple goals and get to the semifinal. I think Bayern's going to hammer them in, in the return leg. And that is not a negative commentary on Villarreal. I think it's yep. awesome they got to this stage. I think it's awesome they eliminated Juventus and have beaten Bayern over 90 minutes at least. And then the Spanish teams... Also frustrating opponents, Atletico Madrid, you knew yesterday that they were going to come out and play basically the way they did against Man City. Maybe not as extremely as they ended up doing that with the 5-5-0. And they made it really hard on City. And it took some really impressive play from Phil Foden and and Kevin De Bruyne finishing it for City to get out of there with a one-goal advantage. But... I I don't necessarily see Atletico having that many goal-scoring opportunities in the return leg. If they get some, they've got some good finishers, but they're going to have to play differently in the second leg. That, for me, was is the thing that stuck out to me in Chelsea's run to the Champions League final last year when they played Atletico was, at some point, there's another gear for them to find, and they just never found it. Like, they just insist upon being this team oh like you know for 180 minutes so look i think atletico what they do is first 10 minutes to try and get a goal go and apply some pressure and i think they'll do that uh when they return home they'll try for 10 to 15 minutes to really have a go and and press high up and maybe get a chance but then they resort back to their shell and they'll you know receive 70 percent possession i honestly could not believe the lengths to which Atletico would defend in this game. I mean, look at Joel Felix playing basically in a, as a left wing back in a back seven. It, it was just, it was astounding to me. I, I and, and it's so, you know, I, I, I personally do not like that style of play. <laughs> I don't like it. I'm going to criticize it whenever I can because, and especially when, okay, I get it when, you know, you're Burnley going away from home to Manchester City. Right. Atletico have a good squad of technical players that can play a little bit, that can honestly cause Manchester City a problem because they've been vulnerable at times. And we'll see at the weekend when they play Liverpool, they will attack them. And I imagine they'll cause Manchester City some problems. Atletico could if they wanted to, but they just didn't want to. And it's so weird to me. And look, Simeone has taken that club to a level that it just wasn't at before. It just wasn't and has kept them there routine and steady. They have spent a bunch of money. They have moved into a new stadium. Like, there are reasons why, but also Simeone deserves a ton of credit for why they're here, but God, that was awful. It was awful. And, like, I get, the ends justify the means if you walk out with a nil-nil. If you get, if you get the nil-nil and you're heading back home, and even to some extent you give them some credit for one-nil, but when it doesn't work and you lose the game and now you've got to go chasing, I just, I, I can't endorse those tactics. And I thought Man City were going to find a way through. At times they look frustrated. At times they look like they were banging down the doors and it wasn't going to happen for them. But like you mentioned, Phil Foden came on, who I think now going forward for Manchester City, you want to talk about Pep Guardiola overthinking things. If there's a big game and Phil Foden's not playing in it, he's made a mistake because Phil Foden, is he deserves to start every big game. And also, the United States of America should be terrified that Gareth Southgate is going to pick Phil Foden on Black Friday, November the 25th, when they play England at the World Cup. 
I love that only now that we know the U.S. is playing England are you like, oh, wait, Phil Foden's really good. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit different when it's closer to home. When it, like, I mean, look, I, I'm a Man City supporter. I know Phil Foden's amazing. But it's terrifying when you have to come up against it in that context. It's like, Jesus. Like this, this could end at the hands of Phil Foden. You wanted to get Walker Zimmerman on on the pod for like a live talk, like talk to him, like while he's watching yeah. Phil Foden do that Tw- in Champions League. Twitter Spaces with Walker Zimmerman. I'm in. <laughs> Couple things I would say. One, Pep Guardiola was asked after the game if he wanted to comment on uh, Atletico and their approach. His response: He just has so much fun at these press events now. It was just like I don't comment on opposing teams. It like. When did that what? start? <laughs> <laughs> you just sound like such a sore loser whenever you say, oh, they were negative. They weren't trying to play. I think it was funny. Jose Mourinho once said that a team played 1800s football when they went away from home to Stanford Bridge, which is rich coming from him. But I mean, that's honestly what it looked like. But just like, like you never, you, you never win when you're in that. You never win when you go, oh, they weren't trying. They're being negative. They're being like, that's such a loser's lament in the press. And the other thing is, if you're Joao Felix, and you're a young guy still, you're a tremendous attacking talent, how badly do you think he wants to play somewhere else eventually? Desperately. Oh my God, would I be desperate to get out of there if I were him? I mean, he'd probably sign a massive contract, and they're going to have to recoup a lot of that investment. But I mean, if I were him, I would be like pulling Pep Guardiola off to the side after the game and be like, hey, can I be your false nine? I feel like you work pretty well here. You don't need to go for Harry Kane. Come for me, please. Dear God, get me out. Like, he's playing wing back. He can't, he can't, that can't be fun. It can't be fun. It can't, he's, he has to want to go. Please, Joel, for the love of God, you're too good for this. Oh, my God. Um, do we have much to say about uh, Benfica 1, Liverpool 3? Um, not particularly. I mean, I, you know, it's Liverpool in some ways, setting themselves up pretty well uh, for, you know, the next week where, all right, now they can really commit to going at Manchester City, giving everything, and they can probably rotate the home leg. You're 3-1 up, taking on Benfica at home. So I think in some ways, you either, if your Klopp go for the second and the third game or the first and the second game, but you know, he picked a really strong lineup. I heard Jamie Carragher on CBS saying he was even surprised at how many of his top players he picked coming off of the international window playing at the weekend. But, you know, he clearly has a plan and it's have a go at City on on Sunday. And then when you play Champions League in midweek, then you'll have a pair of, you know, you'll have guys you can rotate with and probably hold on to a two-goal advantage and, and uh, at Anfield on a European night. Man, Liverpool is playing so well right now, and, and it's so much fun to watch them. And I like the fact that we're starting to see more of the the story of that Luis Diaz could have been bought a few years ago by an MLS team. Is it Real Salt Lake that could have bought Luis Diaz? And like it was just for a few million dollars, and they balked and wouldn't raise their offer and didn't get him. And oh, no. now he's... <laughs> Killing it for Liverpool. <laughs> oh God, it's a punch in the stomach. What what is happening? Uh, but uh, to me, the amazing thing with Liverpool, I mean, you look at their their soccer way page, which is where I, I go to look at form guides. It's just a bunch of green. It's, this probably the screen's right for you, but uh, it's just a bunch of green. They have won six, eight, ten, twelve, seventeen out of eighteen, and the only loss was the second leg loss to Inter, which they're they're through into the Champions League. So they've essentially won the last 18 ties that they've been involved in, which is 
extraordinary. Like, they have been so good, and you kind of run out of superlatives for them because I just did not expect that they would have this level of consistency in them. After kind of some of the inconsistency that they showed before the new year, I didn't think that it would just take, you know, one attacking signing, the emergence of a couple other players, and all of a sudden, they're like too deep at every position, and they can rotate their squad in a Champions League quarterfinal against Benfica and still progress, I would imagine, fairly easily. So their season can really take a step up here in this next week. If they go beat if they go beat Manchester City away from home in the in the Premier League and they take the driver's seat in the title race, I mean, what an absolutely extraordinary 2022 Liverpool would have had. And even if they don't, they're still, you know, obviously one of the best teams in the world. And like you've talked about, one of the favorites to go go and win this Champions League. If Kareem Benzema is the best player in Europe right now, I think Liverpool is the best team. And we'll see if that ends up translating in the games they've got left to get to the trophies they want to get to. I think it will. And I think it's going to be an amazing time for Liverpool fans. It already is just the stretch you already mentioned. And you hadn't had a fancy lad moment in this entire podcast episode until you talked about winning ties, <laughs> which, yeah, for me, it's for good me, to I, get that in there. A two legged tie is a different than like they won the tie. But and, and I, that's one of my favorites. Uh, I think I've done. So I did CONCACAF Champions League. So I did uh, 3-1 on the night, 4-1 on the tie. And like, I, I love I love saying like, you're, you give two different scores, you either say aggregate or the tie. One of my favorites. <laughs> Fantastic. Always good to talk to you, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Kay Murray. Our guest now is a familiar face and voice to U.S. soccer watchers. Kay Murray is a host for ESPN. She's a Middlesbrough native who came to the U.S. in 2012 after six years in Spain with Real Madrid TV. After eight years at BN Sports, she joined ESPN and moved to Connecticut with her husband, Matteo Benetti, with whom she hosts the CalcioCast podcast. Kay, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be on here. It's a podcast I listen to often, Grant, so I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. And and thanks for listening, too. I really appreciate that. Um, I feel like 10 years after your move to the U.S., you're now an American soccer TV fixture at this point. But when you were starting out in England or even during your time in Spain, was coming to the United States something that you always wanted to do or did it just sort of happen? Yeah. Do you know, it wasn't it wasn't in my plans at all in the beginning. It's not that I was against it. I just didn't even think of it. Um, a lot of my career didn't, apart from my work at Borough TV, which is when I started out, I didn't really do as well in England. I wasn't getting some of the jobs that I would have wanted. Um, and I feel that most of my success came in other countries. So that was maybe an indication of what was to come. As things started to progress in Spain, I realized I was ready to move on after all that time at Real Madrid Television. And the funny thing is, is other people saw it before me. So my ex always said, I think that you'd really enjoy working in the US. My best friend said, I don't know why, but I see you in the US. And then I went to the US a few times with Real Madrid, did a bit of work, actually ended up doing some work for Fox Soccer when I came back. I was their Champions League reporter at Real Madrid games. And then more and more people were saying, this has to be it. Anyway, I was doing 2012 Euros in Malaysia. It was just like a one-off, just doing that gig. 
and at Astro Superspot. And I was going out to meet people in Singapore to see if there were any opportunities out there because I knew I was ready to move on to a new challenge. And Dan Thomas from ESPN sent me a message saying, would you like to work in Miami? Which was a really strange thing for him to say because he wasn't in Miami. He said, there's a new network there and I know they're interested in you. And then I went to these meetings in Singapore that day and I could not concentrate on anything else because I thought, why? I want to go to Miami. How do I make this happen? Yes, I'm going to go to the States. And the rest is history. Um, Yep. How did you get started, though, I guess? Uh, You know, let's push back a little bit, like on what was your soccer story growing up in Middlesbrough? Okay, so... In Middlesbrough, the, the football club is just the heartbeat of the town. And it is a town. We're not a city. We've, we've challenged and tried and bid for city status. But as yet, we're still not a city. And so this is a town where everybody knows and loves the football club. And even if you don't love the football club, you'll still know who the manager is. You still know all the names of the players because somebody in your family will be a huge Middlesbrough fan. And so growing up, that's just how it was. Middlesbrough was a part of, of who we were growing up and we always looked out for their results. But the big part of it for me was that the 1990 World Cup, I was only a kid, but it was such a great... When I look back now, it actually wasn't so like wonderful, the entertainment in that way. But at the time, the, the, the run that England went on under Sir Bobby Robson, who was so charismatic with Paul Gascoigne in the team, Gary Lineker. It just captured the imagination of all the kids in England. And that World Cup really nailed it on for me. My granddad was a huge soccer fan too. So after that World Cup, having much more of an interest and breaking my heart when England didn't go all the way, I started to take much more of an interest and want to go to games with my grandfather and want to sit and watch any games that were on TV at that time. A lot of Italian football when I was younger, just be also to get more time with him. And that's when I really, really started to love it. But I always loved the stories, like the stories behind the, which I still do now. I love watching the games, but I love knowing who the players are, how they got to where they are, everything about that. And that was always something that really interested me. So it, it, it just grew and grew and grew. And all the boys at school were always like so easy to get along with because I, I loved men's soccer back then. <laughs> so that I just like, it was just very normal to chat to them about it and to go to games with them and stuff. No, it makes total sense. Uh, I'm also someone who like was formed by the 1990 World Cup, it had a huge impact on just me being interested in, in the sport moving forward after that. Um, you know, Real Madrid TV became this total launch pad of talent. And I'm thinking, I'm probably going to miss some people here, but like you, Reshman Chaudhuri, who just did the FIFA draw show, Ali Bender, Dan Thomas, you mentioned, bunches of others too. I mean, how did you end up there? And, and what was your experience in Spain like? I could go on and on, like you say, there's so many, and they've gone into different fields as well, some of them, but have gone on to be really successful in their fields. They advertised in a local journalism paper that advertised jobs. And at the time I was at journalism school and they, they, they said it's for Real Madrid TV are opening an international channel. And I was in the middle of my studies and I went for the audition and I thought, well, I have to get this. I speak a little bit of Spanish from school at the time. I've already worked at a club channel and I'm studying journalism. It has to be me. There's an, though I think they were, they were putting six people together and they didn't get it. 
And I was absolutely devastated. You know, I've had a lot of knockbacks in my life, but that was one where I thought, I, I can't understand how I didn't get this. And now I really want to make sure that I somehow get to there. That would be amazing. I'd love to do that. And Ali Bender, as you mentioned, did get that job. Now, Ali worked at the shopping channel where I worked. So, you know, like QVC, but it wasn't QVC. We both worked doing that. I worked on air doing selling fluffy towels and kettles and whatnot, as did she. And for me, it was to pave my way through journalism school. But what I didn't realize is the, the tools it gave me, it was completely open talkback. You could hear everyone in the gallery, your director, all the assistants, and it was live. And you were on air talking about your product until that product had sold. And I didn't realize the skills that was given me at the time. Anyway, I digress. Ali was also working at that network. So we would be in the same makeup room. It wasn't like we were friends back then. It wasn't that we weren't friends. It's just she was an acquaintance. Someone would always say hello to in the makeup room. And the only time we'd ever had a chat is she said, oh, you love football, don't you? We're starting a women's soccer team in Hyde Park. You don't have to be good. We just want to start getting some girls together. And it's just a way to all hang out. And at the time, I remember it clashed with my study, so I couldn't go. And that's how I got talking to her. But I took her email. So when I found out she got the job at Real Madrid, I messaged her straight away to say, congratulations. I went for it myself. I didn't get it. And she said to me, oh, I know you love the sport. And I promise you, if an opportunity comes up and I have and I get any chance to have any say, I will put your name forward. And, you know, Grant, people say things like this all the time. And I wasn't even angry. I thought, yeah, OK, that's just what everybody says. And a year later, she genuinely did push to have me come out and screen test. And I don't know if without her, I would have been given that opportunity again. And a year later, I got the job. And I'm really glad it happened the way it did, because I managed to finish my studies. I did nine months on a local newspaper doing written copy, doing proper news, uh, health, education, crime. And that, along with the media law and everything that I learned, actually proved to be invaluable. So everything happens for a reason. And that was the right time for me to go. That's a really cool story. And I've gotten to know Ali Bender a little bit um, over the years. And it doesn't surprise me necessarily, but it's really cool when people sort of behind the scenes do something really positive and helpful like that. And I say, yeah, I say we were acquaintances then, not now. Now she's a close friend. She's been out to visit me. I know her family, her husband, her kids, same with her and, and my family. Now she's a, I consider her a very close friend and that's because of the time that we spent together. And you mentioned like, what was it like in Spain? I can, I can never, ever, ever speak highly enough of what our time was like there. We were this group of, of foreign foreigners in Spain. Most of us English, there was a French guy as well, thrown together in another country. Most of us were getting to grips with the language and it was I suppose it would be like the university experience in that the friendships became much more than friendships. It became like family, like Dan, all the guys and the girls. They were like my brothers and sisters more than just my, my colleagues. And on top of all of that, we got to live in Madrid in our 20s. So we were having a lot of fun going to the Real Madrid games for free, traveling the world with the Real Madrid team, and then getting to enjoy the benefits of a 24-hour city at that age. <laughs> it almost sounds like a real world type you know, reality show that, that 
you know, and, and I always am looking for story ideas. Maybe that's an oral history, like a written story about what those days were like with all those people who we know now in different locations, like the ones you're in. Um, you also hosted FIFA's Ballon d'Or ceremony twice uh, in front of this huge global audience with Ruud Hullet. What stood out to you about that experience? What stood out to me, first of all, was how the heck I even got that. And I know other people might stand back and go, oh, wow, well, you've worked in this industry for a long time. But when that opportunity came my way, I thought this doesn't happen to girls from Middlesbrough. And this is amazing. And surely something's going to happen and I won't get this. And um, what stood out to me was, I think it's the the best way I described it was actually, um, have you ever seen the film Midnight in Paris? Yeah. So that's how it was for me, but it was actually real. So it was like when the clock struck 12, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen that film, it's Owen Wilson, isn't it? And he gets to meet all his idols. And I was at this ceremony where football royalty from past and present we're just walking in on the rehearsal day. And I'm sure you've seen situations like this, Grant. You've been at, at FIFA events. And so that's what really, really stood out to me. And also it was the attention to detail, like the days of making sure that we get this right, of meeting everybody. Um, that's, what, that's what stood out to me. But the best bit was, was actually the after, the dinner afterwards, because the show's done, the pressure's off, and that's when you actually get to talk to those people. And you find some of those people coming up to you to tell you, oh, great job. And you're thinking, no, it's supposed to be the other way around. I was supposed to be saying thank you for all the memories in my childhood, but great anyway, thanks for coming over. I always used to think, you know, and I still occasionally do television, like, it was neat in American soccer if you ever had an audience, and I would think about this, that there were like, oh, there's you know 200,000 people watching this game or 500,000 people watching this game. But the number of people who watched that ceremony, the FIFA ceremony you did, I can only imagine. How big an audience globally are we talking about? So I'm told globally over the course of it, it's like 250 million it can be, which I thought those figures seem a bit weird to me. But what I do know is when I actually, the director in my ear, and goodness knows why he chose to do this, the director in my ear, just before we go to air, goes three, two, 19 million, good luck, one, Q. I'm like, thanks for that. So he said 19 million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would freak me out a little bit, but that's really cool. Um, so you end up going to Miami, and I would argue that being sports in Miami has been this other launch pad for talent in, in a similar way to Real Madrid TV. Was there anything particularly different about the style of a broadcast in the United States compared to what you were used to before that? I think they, and what, I don't always think it was their plan to do this. I think it was more that we had to. We were pretty much give. We were much pretty much given free reign to do what we wanted, um, because a lot of the bosses reverted to us. Uh, maybe they had a specialist subject in another area or another sport, so they trusted us on what we knew about the sport. Uh, but they did have this thing that we had to be in all day every day, which I haven't seen at another network. Almost like nine to five which was really frustrating sometimes. But now when I look back, it was lovely because it had that whole atmosphere of you'd see everybody every day, you'd go to lunch together, you'd have your meetings together. 
and you'd have all that time at work. So I think that a big part of it was allowing us to tell the stories and to do what we wanted to do. So they had like a structure of the shows that they wanted and a blueprint, a lot of it from Doha, where they already had a channel up and running, a lot of it from France. But they pretty much let us make it our own. And then producers who came up had been like assistant producers on the way up. They would also be involved. And the other thing that really mattered to everyone there is given the the number of leagues we had at the beginning is that everybody really, really knew those leagues. It wasn't just like, I'm going to go on air and wing this. They'd be coming in every day saying, did you see this at Levante? Or did you see this at Sassuolo? Everybody really cared. So when we were all talking on air, it wasn't just like we were talking to the audience about it. We were almost talking to one another as well. Like, no, and then this happened. And also, I don't think anybody really had a big ego in that nobody cared. Like, I didn't, there were people who were younger than me and hadn't been in the industry as long as I had, who were bringing things that I didn't know, who were bringing ideas that I didn't know either. And it was great. It was just this, everybody who seemed to apply to work there just really loved soccer. And so when they came to work there, it just, it was it just worked. It was just brilliant. I think the saddest thing for me is one, it should have had a bigger audience than it did. And I feel as though had it had that, and obviously that came down to all the programming issues and that was out of our hands. I think had it had that, it could have had more success. And two is the number of people who were, who are now out of work, lost their jobs when you're being had to make the cuts they did because they worked so hard. They love the game. And I'm sure it won't be long until some of them who are out of work pop up again somewhere. Kind of a random question here, but was it a bigger adjustment moving from Madrid to Miami or from Miami to Connecticut? Uh, from, I think from Madrid to Miami, it was a bigger adjustment moving to the US than it was moving to Spain, where it was a different language to me, which is strange to say, I know. And maybe that's because I was a bit older, so I was not so blasé about everything. Um, there were, but there were a lot of things that were different because back then I was still in the EU. So I just knew that once I had my papers and everything, okay, healthcare is paid for here. I know this, I know how that works. Coming to the US suddenly, and I'm somebody who has a, a chronic disease. I have um, ulcerative colitis. So coming to the US, I was thinking, okay, so until I get my insurance, I actually can't get the medication I need. There was all little things like this and then the visa issue where in going to Spain, I could just work there and just easily back then. So I suppose Madrid to Miami, because coming Miami to Connecticut, it felt like the right time. And I, I feel like I'm getting old here. And I know, I know people joke about Connecticut. I know they do, but we love it here. And it reminds me of my, of my home country. It reminds me of England in so many ways. And I know it's New England. But it was a time in our lives when, you know, I came up here taking a risk. I didn't have a job. Um, we're both at being. Matteo took a leap of faith to go and do Serie A, which I think he even talked about when he came on here. And we always said, like, whoever has the better job and mainly the benefits, the health insurance and everything like that, the full time job, we will go there. So he was traveling every week backwards and forwards to ESPN at first because I had my job in Miami. And then being spots made all of their talent freelance. And that was a big shock for a lot of people because you'd had a lot of your benefits and your support behind you before then. Some people had to go back to the countries they came from. They weren't, they weren't on a visa that would allow them to stay. And luckily I was, I'd done all of that. And I just thought, right, 
what do we do now? Because he's about to go full time with ESPN and he's the one who's having to travel all the time. And now I'm freelance and I don't know what the future is going to hold here. So I said, let's just go up there. And at the time, I just found out I was pregnant. And that was a whole long journey in itself because we went through IVF. Um, so I thought, you know what, I'll take some time and I'm going to bank on myself. It's not a bad place to be, to go and look for work. There are many places up there, New York's up there. And if I have to travel, I will. But right now I'm okay to take a step back and see how things go. So I, I, I contacted ESPN and I went in to meet them. And it's not like it happened straight away, but it did happen in the end, thankfully. But it was just one of those things where I thought, let me take a leap of faith. And if it doesn't happen, I know that he's doing what he loves. I know that eventually I'll get back to it. And in the meantime, there are other things that I've got in my mind anyway, where if I don't end up back in the industry right now, I'll explore some other avenues. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the phrase bet on yourself, you know, and, and it, it sounds like you guys did that and it's it's worked out really well. And I, I'm wondering what's sort of your... So, like, how do you go week to week at ESPN? What are the different things that you do that you've done there that have, have been fun to do? So, first of all, our International Sports Center is a whole new ball game, literally, because now I'm talking baseball, NFL, NBA. And for some people, they might think, oh, gosh, because it's a lot more work for me to have to do that than to go and do a, a soccer show. But I love it because I love I've really embraced American culture. And so I like to be able to know what's going on in American sports and to not be feeling that I can't join in conversations about that. So that's been a real challenge. And what's been really funny is sometimes saying, are you sure I'm saying his name right? And it's not that I don't know how to pronounce it. It's just that I don't want to sound too British saying it, you know, <laughs> because I really do feel that an American voice sounds a lot better with the American sports. So that's been a big change for me. And then it's been really humbling as well, because when soccer's on there, everybody leans on me on SportsCenter, because on the international version, there'll be more soccer than there is on the domestic version. But on the other sports side, genuinely, I'm saying to people, OK, does this sound right? But I like to try and do it myself so that I learn and I know. So that's been a big adjustment. Uh, secondly, and this is a background I started in, but everything in soccer at ESPN, and I mean everything, is prompter free. And I always knew that way from back at Real Madrid, but then coming to be in, there'd be a mixture of both. Maybe you'd do your intros or the big important news things. They would be on the prompter because the bosses wanted that when they first let us free of it. Then they were like, no, we wanted to make sure the structure and the timing's right. So that was like going back to that. And I see the benefits all the time of that. I know because then the show's more free and it's loose and pretty much across the board at ESPN, it's like that, unless it's a sports center, obviously on, an, on a sports news show, it needs to be timed. You need to make sure you're getting your reads right. So that's been a big thing too. And then this, the other part, and I had a bit of, a bit of an introduction to this at being, but not on this scale, is the fact that because there is a streaming service like ESPN Plus, the magnitude of content we can put out is huge. So one week I'll be doing a Bundesliga game, wrapping around that with coverage. The next week it could be La Liga and then an FA Cup game. And then there's an international game that I'm covering. So it's, that's, it's always making sure every single day you don't skip a beat. And I know that it will be like that for you, Grant, with what you're, with your, what you're covering. It's like, I can't miss that show. I need to listen to that podcast because... Just 
and even ESPN FC, I do the show two days a week and more if Dan's away because he's the main host of that. And I fill in, uh, I'm really happy to fill in when he's not on, but that covers all the big stories in the world of soccer. And that includes us soccer and everything that's going on over this side of the world as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot to make sure that you're keeping up to date with. Yeah. Just the sheer volume in soccer alone, but if you're doing other sports on Sports Center, the sheer volume of all of it, you you kind of can't fake it. Like you know, you've got to put in the work to know the names, the storylines, what have you. So that's that's a lot of time I can imagine that goes into that. Kind of a random question as well. So I'm from Kansas. My friends in Kansas, when I go home, tell me that my accent has changed a little bit since I moved to the East Coast way back in the day. Have you had anything like that with when you go back to Middlesbrough? Yeah, so it's so funny with my accent. I feel like I'm going full circle. So in the very beginning, my accent didn't help me when I was coming up and coming through. My, they, they say, oh, regional accents are cool, but regional accents really meant a Welsh accent, a Scottish accent, or an Irish accent, not like regional, regional, especially from the North of England. And I actually had an old boss, not even in a sports channel, tell me, you know, you'd benefit from some elocution lessons. And I, I was thinking, no, now my best friend who I grew up with, who has a much stronger borough accent than me, has just been nominated for a big award back in the UK. She hosts a, a daily lunch show. And I'm like, ha, stick it to you all. So then you go to Spain and it, people don't hear it as much. It's an international audience, but I did have to dilute it somewhat more to be understood. So I changed the way I said my vowels. And that was a way that made it easier for everybody, for an international audience. And then you get people back home going, oh, she's changed her accent. And it's like, no, I haven't. And then you get people who aren't back home going, oh, God, she's got a really strong Northeast accent, hasn't she? So you can't win. And then I came to America. And for the most part, nobody cared. And it's hilarious sometimes when they think, oh, you've got a lovely British accent. I'm like, I don't sound like Elizabeth Hurley, by the way this is not a lovely English accent to many people and now I feel like I'm more comfortable than I ever was and maybe it's because I'm working with Scots and Irish guys and people from all over um, the UK and Ireland back home that I feel I'm actually going a little bit more back to my original accent and the only time I ever get really any nastiness about it it's by expats from England who live in the US. And it's not like they're horrible to me, but they're like, oh, I, I really like her, but I can't stomach her accent. And then I'll see where they're from. And it's like expat or Brit, Brit abroad. And I think, wow, it's so funny how it is. And now I've become a lot more comfortable with my accent because I feel I am understood and I'm actually proud to have it. And it's part of who I am. And look at that. I've been away from England since 2006 and it's still with me. So I think that says something. A couple more questions here with Kay Murray. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I, I did notice on Twitter this week that you're running your first 10K in six years to support the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. Could you share a little more about what you're doing with that? Yeah, so there's a few stories even behind this. First of all, Sir Bobby Robson featured very heavily in my life in three different ways. First of all, as we mentioned, during the 1990 World Cup, it was his passion and love for the England team that, that captured the imagination of my generation of England fans. So that was the start. So I always thought, so Bobby's amazing guy. Two, 
on my, I told you that I worked at a local newspaper. Well, you had to go on a three-day trial before they decided whether you'd fit in on the news desk. And on the third day of my trial, they said, quick, you need to get your things together and get to the shopping centre. So Bobby Robson, I can't remember if he was a star then, but anyway, Bobby Robson's there and he's signing, uh, he's, it's his autobiography and he's signing autographs. And you need to get an interview with him. And I thought they were joking because I was just like on a training course. And my boyfriend at the time, I thought, I wonder if he's rang and said on her last day, like, do something silly to, you know, fool her. But they said, hurry up. The sports report is out on another job. We need you to go. Nobody's available. And we know you know football. So when, when I, Grant, I was so skint. I had no money. And like checkbooks were still being used. So I thought, I don't know how to do this. So I said to his PR person, hi, um, I'm here from the, the Hendon Times. I need to get an interview with Sir Bobby. They said, well, if you haven't booked ahead, you can have five minutes, but you're going to have to wait in line. So I thought, I'll, I'll just buy the book. Oh, no, I can't. I don't even think I have enough money in my bank to do that. <laughs> so I got my checkbook out, bought the book with the check to ring my mom and say, mom, I need you to put some money in my bag because I've got a check going through. Got in the queue to get it signed and then told him, hi, um, I'm a trainee reporter and this is my third day of my trial and they've sent me here and expected, but I grew up, what, I loved England because of you and I have lots of questions. And he was like, whoa, whoa, is that a Northeast accent I detect less? And I said, yeah, I'm from Middlesbrough. And he was like, and what did they say? Five minutes? I said, yeah, he said, oh, we'll make that half an hour. And he was just amazing. He gave me this great interview. I asked questions I'd wanted to ask since I was nine years old. And his interview was what sealed me getting the job there. So that's two. Three, and this is the big part of it. Unfortunately, my dad got kidney cancer in 2011 when they found a secondary brain tumor. And that tells you it was stage four because obviously there was a secondary brain tumor there. And he, he battled on. And after we heard the awful words, after a few years that so many families have been through of there's nothing more we can do, there was an oh, wait moment. But there is actually a centre in Newcastle. It's under the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. And they run trials for willing participants of new drugs that are being tried out. And if you go and look up at everything that the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation is about and the work that they do up in Newcastle, you can see that. We can't prove it, but we think it may have given my dad a little bit of extra time. What I do know it gave him is a happiness that I hadn't seen from him in those late stages before he passed away. He came home from there just feeling so much better than he did he came home from there with what felt like renewed hope. He came home from there with a smile on his face when we didn't see him smiling as much in those final days. And he, he actually teared up. And he was like a strong Middlesbrough guy who I only saw crying really in his later years. And he would tear up when he came home from there to say how wonderful they are and how special they all make you feel. So I've since then stayed in touch with everybody there. And it means so much to me because if they can continue to do the work that they're doing and they can continue to make families uh, have that little bit of happiness, have that little bit of hope and to give people more time, just even that little bit more time, if that's what it is, as they continue to look for cures and uh, medications that work, drugs that work, then um, I want to help as best as I can. So that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Secondly, anybody who's been following me for a while might think, 
oh, she used to run 10Ks all the time. She was always sharing her running. I've got friends on Nike Plus who will see that I used to do big long distances, but I haven't run 10K since 2016. And that was back in a battle with Ian Joy when we decided we'd try and see who could do the most kilometers that month. Um, we drew in the end. Uh, so that's the last time I did it. And since then, I've had two pregnancies. I've had surgeries either side of those pregnancies. And my body has been through a lot. And so this is also a little selfishly, and I'm doing it for a great cause, but I'm doing it for me too, to get back to feeling a bit more like me again and to, to get more to like I'm that and from once you're a mom you see everything through a different eyes like those kids come first but I also want to put myself just behind them and give myself a bit of who I remember who I was and to get back into running which is something that I love is great so when they approached me and asked me if I'd do it I said I need to go and see the sports therapist because I just need to check my knees and everything are okay my tummy and he was like yeah you can run so it's a good challenge for me and Grant, I'm going to see if I can keep going and do an even longer distance after it if everything goes well. Well, thanks for sharing all of that and good luck with it. I guess the only other question I'd have about it is if listeners want to support it, what's where's the best place for them to go? So I'm going to share the links on my Twitter page and my Facebook page. And like anything would be great. In fact, if they'd want to run it themselves, they can. All they ask is that you wear the soccer shirt of your choice. And it can be, it doesn't have to be Newcastle. Obviously, I'm not wearing a Newcastle shirt. Um, I'm going to be wearing a Middlesbrough shirt. And you can do it yourself. They just ask that you raise the equivalent of 50 pounds. So I've paid that myself already to ensure that I do that. And anyone who wants to support it otherwise can just share my tweets or just donate whatever they can. And that would be great knowing that it's going towards a great cause. And just to finish up here, I, I would ask you a question I sometimes ask to interviewees here because we have a lot of listeners who are students who want to go into our business, who want to do what you do. Um, would you have any advice, career advice to share with them? Yeah, I've got lots. Um, and I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people who reach out for me to me for this as well. I think a few things to know is to the big one that I always say is, and I know I had the focus of Real Madrid, but look, I went elsewhere in that meantime and that helped me for other things. So if you want to get into the industry, industry and not the door that you wanted opens, but a door opens that still put, takes you one step ahead of where you were, take it because you never know where it might lead. And it's still one step closer to where you're trying to get to. So that's one of the big things I've got. And the other thing is to be nice. And I know that sounds silly because everybody should be nice, but you don't realize how many people you're going to continue to see in this industry, people who might be what you perceive as below you on whichever rung of the ladder they're at when, when you're in a certain place and will end up in a position where you need their help or they're the ones hiring or they're the ones on a team where they're looking for new people. And not just that, it's just you make everything much better. You make your broadcast and everything better. If you're kind and you get on with the people around you, everything then shows on air if that's the way it would be. So they're two of my big advices and adv advices. Uh, they're two of my, like, yeah, my big, my big tips. And also, can I just say one thing? I see a lot of people saying, oh, what advice would you give for the industry about getting into it? And they say, and I really hate seeing that. I think that's not a nice thing to say back. And I know people are joking, but so many people want to get into this industry. And obviously we all did. 
So try and give them some advice on none if you're going to say don't. They already know. I'm sure they already know it's the pitfalls and that you're not going to be some big millionaire, but they want to get into it because they love the sport. So try and give some constructive advice when you can, if people are looking to get into the industry. Kay Murray is a host for ESPN. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kay. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Kay Murray as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time.